This week on the Dragzine Podcast, tuner Patrick Barnhill joins us to talk about his experiences in tuning race cars, winning championships, and a whole lot more. So, hold those belts tight, get ready to put them in the beams. The Dragzine Podcast starts now. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the show, the legendary Patrick Barnhill joins us and... Uh, He's he's an interesting character, and this was a lot of fun to do this show. We get to hear, you know, how kind of how he got into this game, his background, and some of the, the the stuff that he's tuned on. A lot of people not might not know about it's a it's a really interesting education and in what goes into being a high level tuner. So, uh, without further ado, let's get this drag racing party started. All right, my guest this week on the Dragzine Podcast is someone that I've wanted to get on for a while. Someone that. I've been around a lot of different forms of racing since he's crewed on other people, you know, kind of ran out with him with Mark Kyle, Ray Litz and those guys and someone that there's a lot of stories that we could tell that are completely not podcast safe. Mr. Patrick Barnhill, what's up? Uh, doing really well. How about yourself? Doing good, man. Starting to get ready to do some racing and whatnot. And, uh, you know, here's some engines fired in anger and have a, have a good time. Yeah, no, I am. I am ready to get going. Believe me. It, uh, tired of sitting around that's for sure yeah you know for for racers and people in the high performance industry like this amount of downtime for type a personalities is like <clears throat> the worst thing possible just you, you don't leave alpha dogs laying around too long because we start to come up with a lot of bad ideas on stuff we want to do you, you know you know it's funny is is uh me laying around has uh has actually uh actually let me work on my golf game quite a bit to be honest with you I forgot. Yeah, you uh, you you like to play a whole lot of golf as well. I do. I do. I've actually played uh, damn near every day possible. To be quite honest with you, I played a lot of golf in the off in this downtime, and uh, you know, tuned some cars online, done some tune-ups online, did some uh, have done some developmental work with Haltech on the new EC, ECU that's coming out here in in a couple of weeks, and uh, just haven't been traveling. That's all. Yeah, yeah, you, you take uh, just one uh, one of the uh, flaming chainsaws you have to juggle out of the mix, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned the whole uh, the tuning remote thing because I've seen you at events tuning cars at the event you're at, and then I believe it was Bodie's car. You were tuning, tuning that car remotely. He was at, like, some big, like, grudge race out west, and you're, like, tuning his car remotely there. And I was just amazed to watch you juggle all of that at the same time. That's That's truly a talent. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, that we've done, we've grown accustomed to doing. Uh, I remember back uh, um, a couple years ago at Bradenton Motorsports Park, we were racing NMCA tuning, and uh, uh, hell, we, we, we got uh, Chris Poncier, they call him Cali Chris on Street Outlaws with that, uh, um, with that, it's a really nice orange Chevy, too. They were racing the, one of the original No Prep Kings race at, uh, at Galat Motorsports Park, and uh, we ended up uh, beating Birdman in the finals. So it, we were we were racing Eric's car and, and our other NMCA customers and then uh, running the whole Street Outlaws deal over there with uh, actually a couple of cars over in uh, in Galat. So it's kind of a a normal weekend for us, honestly. We have have cars racing all over the place. That's, that's totally wild. And what I think a lot of – we were talking about this in the pre-call because I was curious myself about this. A lot of people don't realize – that before you, you know, started tuning anything with an engine that, you know, you were a driver at some point and had your own rides, right? I did. I did. You know, honestly, I, I, uh, I started out way back in the nineties. Um, 
actually, uh, it was an interesting story how I got into racing was, uh, you know, I bought this, I bought this little, uh, this little Mustang, right? It was a 1991 five liter LX deal. And I think I probably picked it up in like 90, I guess it would have probably been 97 maybe. And, uh, you know, and, and tinkered around with that and, and played with that and had some fun. And then, uh, saw that, uh, I think it was, it was 1998 or 1999. I can't recall exactly, but, uh, national trail Raceway was having the event. They called the national streetcar association, which, uh, obviously known as the NSCA back in the day. And I, I really didn't have any idea what it was. You know, I was playing a lot of golf back then and I had a little Mustang, you know, and that, that was what I was doing. And, and I was working in the banking industry and, uh, um, and, and it, uh, I, I caught my eye. I thought, Hey, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to go there and there's going to be a bunch of cars similar to my own. So I didn't, uh, so I went to national trail raceway and absolutely was floored, had no idea what I was walking into. And I saw, you know, the, the, the Pat Muses and the Tony Christians and the, and, and all the stuff that was just, uh, you know, which I had seen before in, in a magazine, but really had never seen them in person and, and walked into it and, and said, man, this is what I want to do. And that's what, that's basically what got me started way back then. That's, that's just wild because, you know, you, a lot of guys I talk to in the racing industry, you know, I write features on them and they kind of start, you know, you know, their dad raced or someone else raced, and they're just kind of brought into it. You know, you coming from a financial background, and then all of a sudden going, I'm going to buy a Mustang. Oh, hey, check out the streetcar race. And then, <laughs> wham, you know, you, you start, you know, trying to your own little quest in that, uh, that Nova at some point, right? Yeah, well, what happened is it was interesting is, is uh, um, so I went to that particular race, and I watched all these cars run, and 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 then I I I saw this. They had they had a bracket program there as well at the time, and I and I, was, I watched this Nova that a guy named Gary Passion out of uh, out of Belpre, Ohio, uh, he was racing there, and he he had this black Nova, and, and it was it was a beautiful car, and it and it ran really well, and it, you know it wasn't part of the heads up program, but it was still running in the nines, and and back then it was you know that was pretty fast. You know, he's running nine forties and fifties back then. And uh, I said, man, that's a sweet car. That's cool. So I watched the whole event and all that sort of thing. And then I started going to the drag strip and I started seeing this Nova show up again. And I thought, yeah, man, I, I really like that car. So, you know, Gary and I had become friends just, just from hanging out. And, uh, and I told him, you know, if you ever go to sell the Nova, um, you know, I'd like to buy it. So it, he, uh, he called me and I guess it would have been somewhere. I guess it was probably 99 he called me and uh, said that he was going to build a, a new body style Corvette and that the Nova would be up for sale. So I, I told him I would buy it and uh, I bought that Nova and we put a little, uh, a little 355 uh, kind of bracket motor, you know, little, little Brodex track one headed deal in there. And, uh, um, and basically uh, started to bracket race that thing. And, uh, in in like, early 2000 2001 2002 and uh won a couple of championships at national trail raceway with it won a bunch of races matter of fact i was out in the garage tidying up the other day and uh, i saw uh a lot of my old trophies that were in a box and all that sort of shit my championship trophies and all that sort of crap so got started in the in the bracket scene but my heart was always in that in that national streetcar association deal so i I had the car with no stickers on it. I had mufflers on it. I had it basically just like, 
one of those cars just just kind of waiting for a good engine and uh that's kind of where it went yeah that's that, that's another interesting theme you see a lot of times where guys you know grow out of bracket racing and you know they want to do the heads up deal and you know i've seen some pictures of that nova and you know that car definitely fits into like that late 90s early 2000s like motif of way those cars look just clean nasty and fast yeah and all the stickers in the back windows if you remember that you weren't allowed to put stickers on the bodies at a uh at those events you know you had to have them looking as a street car so every sticker was uh was pretty much in the back window of the car and, uh, and that's how that's how it was all done back then and and it was uh, it was fun you know and then i i my next progression was i i built a little sp 2.2 engine um got some parts from hendrick motorsports and uh and and put this little sp2 engine together and uh ran that on nitrous for a year in uh in the limited street class in the NSCA and uh, had a good time with that. Is there times where, you know, you eventually are trying to, you know, set records with the car. Is there times where you kind of want to go back and be just a bracket racer driver again, just, you know, to, to enjoy to get out there and do it for the fun of it? Or are you just completely all in with this cutthroat competition, you know, the, the higher level stuff? You know, what's interesting is that the driving was never a real draw for me it's always been the competitive nature of it that i love um so so i really don't have much desire to really drive any longer uh it, it doesn't matter to me i i enjoy the the competition i enjoy the the quest for um the quest to just be better the quest to be faster every run down the track to improve upon something and i think that's why i love the tuning aspect of things so much is uh we get to do that. We get to toy with things. We get to try things. We get to, you know, try to, you know, blaze new trails and do different things that, that, that others haven't done before and, uh, and do it from that side of things. You know, the driving side of it was never really a big draw. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I, I didn't mind it, but it wasn't the, it wasn't why I did it. I did it because I like the challenge. You know, someone else said something similar to me like that was uh, Mickey Tessner when he talked about building cars. And when he got rid of the green car, he said, you know, I'm not like he, he said a driver per se. He goes, I just like to build stuff in the next challenge. He goes, the driving was fun, but, it, you know, it didn't scratch the itch for him as much as like building cars and like going after the, the chassis challenge. So it's it's definitely something I've, I've heard before for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's something where where. You know, it's been a, uh, it's it just, I don't know, the challenge of it is, is always been what I love. And I think that's why I've always, you know, like I said, golf was a big part of my life for a long part, a long time. And it, it just reemerged just recently was also because it's, it's a challenge. It's such a challenge and, you know, racing and golf are, are rival each other so different in the, in, in what you would consider. But, but when you break it down to the nuts and bolts, um, every day is a new day and the challenge of it always changes you know whether it be track conditions or, or course conditions or, or or weather conditions in each of them um or or just the 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 small minor details in each of those it makes up what makes it so difficult and i think that's what i like about both of those things so much is is just that you know it's it's really the small details what what uh 
what separate one from the, you know, you from the next guy, you know? Well, yeah. And, and you know, when you look at it with golf compared to being a tuner, it's those little details and the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're battling multiple different forces and you have to compensate for all of them. And just the, the it's, it's a big, it's a mental game. It really, really is. I think when it comes to tuning. Yeah. And it, and it was, uh, you know, and I, and I like back in, in the, in the early two thousands after the nitrous engine in that Nova, we decided to tackle a, a project with, with methanol um, and a procharger. And I had an F2 procharger. And I worked with Sergio, um, who's still at procharger at this day. I worked with Sergio a, a long, long time ago. And our goal was to be the first seven-second uh, supercharged car with a, with a blow-through carburetor because no one had done it. Um, there was, uh, uh, you know, so, so we, we put a lot of effort with, Roger Huddleston at CNS Carburetors, and we built this uh, spaceship-looking carburetor. Basically, it utilized – again, I, I never like to do anything simple, I guess. So it utilized, like, electronic, you know, bowls on it pretty much so that so that it's no needles and seats. So it had solenoids with sensors inside of the carburetor bowls that were, that were acting as my needle and seats. So they were, like, a, basically a, a, a three-eighths – diameter you know solenoid letting the fuel into the bowl to keep enough fuel into it and uh it was kind of a a work in progress we figured it out together and we made it all work and uh we ended up running some 770s with that setup um you know back in the day and uh and as soon as we switched out of that and as soon as i conquered that goal of getting in the sevens with that carburetor which it it took a little time because we had to figure some things out we had to work our way through it get enough fuel in it and do this and that but as soon as we accomplished our goal, I instantly then jumped into the fuel injection world. And, uh, and that's kind of what got me started. And what I am today is, uh, is, you know, back then there wasn't that many people doing this. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of information. I was working with John Meany at Big Step 3. And, um, and we, we really didn't have the right fuel injectors for what we were trying to do. You know, it was just we were kind of just figuring this methanol thing out as we went. And, uh, and, and that's kind of what got us into this tuning deal is, uh, is there, you know, you, you really had to kind of do it yourself. So had to teach myself and, 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 uh, trial and error and, and, you know, hurt some parts here and have some successes there. And, and that's kind of how you learn. When did you realize when, you know, when did you realize, all right, I can do this full time. You know, I can I can leave the suit and tie behind. I can leave corporate America behind and I can just play race car to pay the mortgage. When, when did that come about? Well, what was interesting is Jason Lee and I had uh, raced together in the NSCA and uh, um, both competed with each other, became good friends and uh, and decided, you know, he was doing a little thing on the side. I was doing a little thing on the side and just decided, you know what, if we put our strengths together, um, we can uh, we can actually have a, 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 you know, form something cool. So Jason and I decided, Hey, let's get this together. And, uh, and it was a funny story. We were sitting there and, uh, trying to come up with a name. Right. And, and, and we were just joking around and, and it was, uh, because at the time I was still doing the mortgages and Jason was still a, a district manager at British petroleum. So our joke of it was that it was a part-time business. So we came up with this name, Part-Time Performance. Never did I really think the name would stick or that we would choose that name. But it, uh, 
he said something that made it stick. He said, uh, he said, he, you know, there's an old uh, uh, hip hop song uh, from a from a band called Naughty by Nature, and it was "You Down with OPP, Yeah, you know me. And he said he made me laugh. He said, "You down with PTP? Yeah, you know me." And and ever since that type of deal, that company name stuck, and part time performance was 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 born. I guess you could say. Um, as a joke, the name was literally a joke, you know, so it, uh, uh, but it, it, uh, you know, we, we, we grew the thing and eventually, um, the big, uh, the big crash of 2008 hit, um, 2008, 2009. And, uh, um, so, so Jason was laid off from BP and, you know, the, our goal, our, our talk was, Hey, let's just take this thing. We were doing well enough to, uh, to go, more full time on this. So, so we, we did that, you know, I still stayed with mortgages till about 2010 and, uh, and, you know, kind of did both. And then at around, around 2010, I just decided that, uh, we were growing on this side of things. It was taking me, uh, you know, a lot of traveling and a lot of this and a lot of that. And it was just getting to the point where I had to make a choice between one or the other. And, um, instead of choosing the path of lots of money, because that's, that's what the, the, my other, business would have would have been or was at the time i, I kind of chose the path that made me happy and it's uh and that's that's pretty much what i did and that's you know which is usually against what most people do most people go for the financial gains as opposed to the to the to the satisfaction of being happy and uh i kind of went the other direction i figured you know what we'll make enough to survive we'll be good and uh and it'll be a hell of a lot easier to sleep at night uh doing this rather than having to deal with angry real estate agents and all that sort of shit. Cause at that time, the, uh, uh, the markets were a little tougher than they are today. You know, I can a hundred percent identify with that because I ran into the same thing and how I kind of fell into this media gig. I was doing it part time, you know, as a freelancer and it just, it comes to a point where you're like, you look at that exactly. You know, I could go the path of where I can make a lot more money or I could do something where I wake up every day and I don't hate my life. And when you combine that with race cars, it's an amazing thing. It really, really is. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, it's really cool, and it's been a great, uh, a great path to travel. And you know, we've learned a lot, we've done a lot, and uh, it's been a hell of a lot of fun, to be honest with you. You know, I, I couldn't have had this kind of uh, in my other career. It was, uh, it was, it was very, it was more cutthroat than racing, if that makes sense. And it was a. Uh, um, it was definitely, you know, I, I ran a company, I had employees working for me, I had all that sort of stuff, but the stress level and the responsibility level and the legislation that was coming down the pipe and all the things that were changing in that environment made it to where it was no longer fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I was right there in, you know, in 08, I was working in the legal industry when all that happened, and it's, people don't understand how brutal all of that was on other industries, and it just made you know, I'm just going to go to the racetrack for a living or, you know, do race car stuff. It was like, yeah, I, I think I want to do that now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, and, and it, it was fun because it, it gave us a, an outlet that was uh, exciting, you know, and it still is exciting today. Like uh, I still get that exciting feeling when, uh, when I'm pulling in the gate of a racetrack and I know we've got some really cool cars to go work on and some cool stuff, even if it's just a test session, I still get that same feeling that I used to get back then. 
And, uh, and that, that says a lot. There's a lot to be said for that when you can roll into, into the front door of your work, which to me happens to be a gate of a racetrack, and, uh, and enjoy it still, you know, after this many years. Oh, yeah. And, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen you guys tune on is definitely to call it cool is an understatement. It's I've been lucky, you know, you're local to me around here. We get to cross paths at different events and local stuff. And over the years, I've seen you tune on anything and everything from a twin turbo AMC dragster all the way up to, you know, pro mods and whatnot. You know, out of everything you've tuned on, what's the most kind of like, what's the most challenging thing you've had to deal with, you know, combo, you know, class, whatever, or all of them, you know, what's it, what's the big challenges you faced? You, you know, ironically, they, they all have their own little challenge each. Uh, I would say that the most difficult thing to work on um, is probably a big tire pro mod because there's so many variables that go into it. Uh, but then again, you know, we've worked on everything from uh, stock eliminator cars. You know, we just, uh, we just runnered up at the U.S. Nationals this past season with uh, with one of our customers in, in Stock Eliminator. He was in the finals, and uh, you know we runnered up with him with his first time, first basically first race out with a Haltech EFI, uh, and then also um, we have uh, we set a bunch of Super Stock and records with uh, uh, Lincoln Moorhead's car out, out of out of the New New York area. Um, we've run really really well with him, uh, one su- class Super Stock J Automatic and. And I, th- I bet you throughout the years at, at the U.S. Nationals, we've probably won class with, uh, I don't know, 10 or better of our customers. So we've got class titles at, at, at the U.S. Nationals with that many customers. Um, and then you go into the into the, the small tire world. You know, we've Jason's won a bunch of world championships and uh, a lot of our customers have won, you know, a whole lot of championships. So it was interesting. We don't really I think we're pretty shitty self-marketers, if that makes sense. Um we don't really tout too much about what we do or what, what happened. But I think last year uh, in the, in the 2018 season, or I'm sorry, in the, in the 2019 season, um, we, we were uh, kind of tallying up how many races we actually won last year and just any, every venue possible, anything from local, you know, grudge racing to, uh, to, to major, you know, championship events. And uh, I think Jason, and I won over 39 races last year. And there's something that you just mentioned in there that I think we need to bring back up, and that's winning class at Indy. And people uh-huh. don't understand these days. I think it's really lost these days, which is a shame, on how big of a deal it is to win class at Indy. And I didn't really, like, it didn't sink in for me until I was at Indy last year. And the level of competition and what racers do to win class at Indy to say they pull out all the stops is an understatement. They're ice and intakes, draining oil, finding every tiny ounce of horsepower possible. Don't care if they drive over the crank. They just want to say that they won class at Indy. What's that? Well, like? you know, what's what's interesting is uh, uh, a gentleman I mentioned, Lincoln Moorhead, right? Out of we've got a it's a it's an eighty five Camaro, basically, is what it is, and and we run super stock J automatic with that particular car. And uh, and we've won class at Indy, um, in in uh, uh, three times since I've been working with it, with, with Lincoln. Uh, but both most recently would have been 2018 and 2019. Um, we've won class at Indy, and it was 
you know, there in 2018, that, that was a, that was a satisfying one because there was a, a, a car from the West Coast who was slated to just come in and mop the floor with everybody, just crush everybody. And, and class is so important at Indy that a lot of guys, a lot of guys, believe it or not, show up in Indy just for class. And, 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 and for the guys listening that don't understand what class is, class is that. You take all the baddest Superstock J automatic cars in the country, and they all score off against each other in a heads-up race, and and they all have to adhere to you know the same rules and the same everything, and uh, so so we show up and we got this guy to crush everybody, and we've been doing a lot of testing and a lot of dyno work and a lot of everything. Uh, his engine builder John Gullius, uh, which who is an older guy out of the out out of Pennsylvania area. He uh, he put together a platform, uh, a legal power plant that was really really good, and we basically uh, went out there knowing that we had a pretty pretty sweet hot rod, and uh, and ended up winning class, uh, taking out the guy in California in the finals, and actually gapped him. So it was pretty cool, you know. We 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 uh, Lincoln as a driver is a, is a tremendous driver, cuts great lights, and. Uh, um, you know, but class is a big deal. People spend, we, I, I bet you we've put seven torque converters through that car um, and, and countless, countless other minor changes to pick up hundredths. You know, it's not like we're picking up tenths here. We're picking up a couple hundredths at a time, you know, which, which accumulate into, into something. But uh, that form of racing is so about the details. It's unreal. So uh, when it comes to, how the engines assemble, the width of the bearings, the, the the things that are done to those engines to make them live. Because you figure, if you if anyone out there ever owned an '85 Irox Z, that car made uh, about 215 horsepower. Well, that exact same engine is now making 650. So with the same parts, you know, it, it's 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 pretty astounding how they do this. You know, these engine builders are, are very, uh, very talented guys in the super stock world. I believe in the super stock world, those are probably the most talented engine builders um, when it comes right down to it because of the details that they have to they have to take parts that were never designed to do it. There are no billet heads, billet blocks, any of that stuff. It's cast iron stuff built from GM, and you have to take that stuff and make it great. It takes a lot of talent. Oh, yeah. I, I could sit. And, you know, as a media person, I could work an event that was nothing but stalker and super stalkers for 18 hours, and I would not complain. Just watching those cars, like, and, you know, Super Stock J automatic is, that's a pretty burly class. Like, the, the cars in the Super Stock and some of those classes, it's, like you said, it, it it's not kind. You know, if you, you're off by, you know, a hundredth or a thousandth, you're going home when you're running class, plain and simple. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Yeah, it's just what goes into those is almost up there like it's sort of like competition eliminator, except it's not quite as mad scientist-y like with those guys doing competition eliminator. But it's the same level, like you said, attention to detail and being able to make those cars do what they do is truly astounding. It, it is. It is. And it's something where, where it, it takes a lot of a lot of dedication to that class. Um, and, and the only thing that that, that that I look at that to me is uh, a little bit of a disappointment is when you walk through the pits of a, of a stock super stock race, 
he realizes there's not a lot of young competitors coming up in that stuff. No. Um, most of the competitors in that stuff are, are guys that are, that are going to be a, a young competitor in, in, in that stuff is, is really in his thirties or forties right now. There, there isn't a whole lot of young, young people getting involved in that. And I think, I think in my opinion, and it is, I think it's the fault of, of, of the, of, of NHRA not paying attention to what's going on. They're, they're, they're looking down a, a, a scope that they've looked down for so many years, but they're not paying attention to what the younger crowd likes. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I think that's a mistake for drag racing. I really do. And I think that's why all this grassroots racing um, has been so popular is all this heads up stuff that we're all doing is so popular because it's different from the NHRA world. And this is what the younger crowd likes. You know, the younger guys want to build a Mustang with a, with a, a pro charger or twin turbos on it or, or, or you know, and, and go to the local Cecil County heads up race or go to uh you know, something of that nature. Um, and, and, and also I think NHRA misses the boat because the, the style of racing that they've in, that they've infused into the sportsman world for so many years, uh, doesn't carry a crowd. Um, it does not, it doesn't draw a spectator. Uh, it's very difficult for, if you are not a fan of drag racing to go to a race where there's a bracket style race and understand without someone explaining to you what's happening because you don't know. You're like, what is that? Why is this guy leaving for this guy? You know, and I think that that's why all of our heads up programs, you know, the stuff that Donald Long has done, the stuff that, uh, um, you know, just countless other promoters have done. Uh, Jim Halsey, of course, you know, he's, he's instrumental in it. Monty, Monty from Yellow Bullet has, has been, you know, like I said, a, 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 a true pioneer and, fa- and grandfather to all this stuff, you know, with his website back in the day that allowed us all to have a platform to go to. Um, you know, those types of guys have, 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 have really been able to take drag racing in a different direction than what NHRA has tried to do. And I believe that that's been the popularity and the, and the, the forward movement in our sport um, for the younger crowd. Uh, because most of your NHRA racer, if you look at them, most of them just are not young guys. You know, I'll 100%, you know, I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar because it's true. 100%. And the way, the, the reason I know that, that there's indisputable proof about that is I'm, you know, I've said it a million times. I'm lucky. I get to go to every kind of major form of drag racing there is. And the event that has that absolutely juicy demographic that marketers love that 18 to you know whatever male market with a little bit of money in their pocket no prep racing hands down more than any other form of drag racing i've been to outside of the world cup like going to the big no prep races you know like out Armageddon is packed with people that are within that demographic and it's not just for the street outlaw guys they help but it's like the local hero guys, the underground no prep guys. People love it. They eat it up. It's like the old days of drag racing. Hey, you know, you know what's funny is is um, is is the 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 original the original guys that started all of our heads up movement are are you know the guys like Tony DePillo with the NSCA with the National Streetcar Association, um, you know Peterson Publishing with the NMCA originally, uh, you know that sort of stuff. Um, 
hot, you know, that, that sort of, of, of group there. And then, and then hot rod magazine used to cover that sort of stuff. They've kind of gotten away from that now, but they used to cover that thing uh, quite a bit. And uh, those NMCA, NSCA, fun Ford weekend and the NMRA, those four sanctioning bodies, if you look at what you just said, spawned all of that. So, so if you go back and you look at uh, a lot of your street outlaw crowd, if you go talk with some of the guys who are the original street outlaw guys, you know, uh, Chief and Sean and, and, and all those guys, a lot of them got their, got their influence from those early, you know, streetcar racers, Pat Music, Tony Christian, that sort of stuff. So they built these cars, but of course out there they didn't have a place to race, so they all just kind of raced on the street. You know, and that's what they did because originally all of that stuff was streetcar racing. That's what it was. So, so the whole no prep scene, the whole all of it, all of it gets its origins from the original, um, you know, the original 1992, you know, you know, Memphis stuff and and the and the 94 stuff in Memphis and all that kind of all those Memphis races and and the fastest streetcar shootout races that all took place in the early 90s have spawned what we have today um, because a lot of those guys grew up watching that sort of racing and it's eventually spawned into what it is. And I think that the no prep circuit has really gained a lot of popularity because it is, it's unpredictable. It's not predictable. You know, you don't know what's going to happen when two cars leave the starting line. It may not be two cars making it to the finish line. You know, it it could be a, a pedal fest. It could be, it could be a whole lot of things going on. And I think that's why it has so much popularity and it also draws in because of the television aspect of it. It's drawn in a a a a, a fan that wasn't necessarily a drag racing fan. They were just a fan of a show and a and a, and a, and a person on a show, and that brought them out to the no prep scene. And uh, and just a lot of great things have happened from from that whole circuit. And like you said, it's not necessarily just the show stuff any longer. There's a whole lot of no prep racing going on that uh, um, you know your local racer can get involved in and have a great time. And I think the other thing the no prep stuff has done is it's taken a little bit of the wallet out of it uh, because it's not always about the guy with the most horsepower. It's about the guy who can just get to the other end safely, you know? Oh, totally. Last year, they're not doing it this year at Outlaw Armageddon, which totally makes me sad. But last year they did that round robin deal where you had to win your way into the main, to the main event I made a very interesting observation as they were pulling all of the racers in for the first round of the main event. There was only one guy that is like a was a big street outlaw 405 name that made the show, Dominator. Not Big Chief, mm-hmm. not anybody else. And it was a it was an interesting mix of people. Of course, Kayla ended up winning it in which she earned it. But it was very interesting to see how all of that went down and people still loved it. They ate it up because you had the guys who were view, you know, rooting for Wayne in the blown pro mod probe thing. You, you had Kayla's fans. You had the guys that loved Dominator. I mean, it was totally awesome to see that happen. And it just reinforced, you know, that that thought that I was having that these fans just love this kind of racing and they love to root for their person and it's regional too which it's crazy no absolutely no that, it, i like that format i thought that format was really cool um i'm, I'm disappointed to hear they're not going to do that again this year i thought that was that was actually really cool 
Um, you know, as far as the no prep is considered, I, I thought it was, uh, I think the whole thing is really neat. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely gained in popularity and it sure is tough as a tuner to make that work because a lot of times you come off the trailer, there are no test runs. So it, uh, so you'll show up at, at, at one of these events and, and the first pass down the track is actually an elimination round. Um, that, that what was kind of nice about that, that format that they were doing was it wasn't necessarily a, a, the round made a difference. It counted, but it wasn't the only run. You know, there are times where we've gone to some of these races and, and, uh, and, you know, you, you show up and the track isn't what you think it is. And, and you, you, you either have a great run and you get to the next round or you don't, you know, it's, it makes it difficult. It's hard to, uh, to manage a track you've never been on yet. Um, I know that we've, we've had a lot of success at a, at a, at the original no prep race, uh, which is, a uh, uh, a race called Cots King of the streets out, oh, yeah. out in, in Chicago. So, so I think our customers have won that race at least five times, maybe more. Um, uh, matter of fact, I was, uh, Lucas Weldon. I was on the phone with him last night. We were having a talk about uh, a friend of ours that had passed away recently, and uh, um, and and just reminiscing a little bit about some of the old good times at the Cots races and things like that. And and you know we we'd we'd, uh, we'd won that race with uh, with with Phil Smith. They call him Corn Dog. We'd won it with him a couple of times. Um, we won it with uh, with Lucas. You know, and and uh, Paul Mantia won it with Paul Mantia. Actually, that was. Uh, we we really had a lot of success in that. Now, that was the original no prep small tire 28 inch shootout, and that was off the trailer. And the rules were crazy. Like like the rules were different. The way the way the rules read in that race at one time, which I still think is the greatest round win I've ever seen. Um, it was uh, it was Paul Mantia, and I believe I can't recall if he was racing against Boost 12. Time. But Paul Mantia, we had, a, we had a silver Mustang with a Pro Charger on it, uh, big block Chevy, and he. The rules were, you could cross the center line as long as you didn't hit the other car or take out a cone. So Paul's going down the track, crosses the center line, gets in the in the in the in the lane behind the other car, and and swerves his way around the cones at the half track mark to get back in his lane and this is back when it was quarter mile racing and then runs the guy down and ends up winning the race so he literally goes from his lane into the other lane about about 330 and about the eighth mile he swerves around the cones to get back in his lane and actually goes and runs down the uh, the competitor and, and, and wins the round and and it was the coolest. I mean, it was a wild victory. You know, I've never seen a pass like that before. It never have since, to be honest with you. That's been that that crazy. I mean, it was nuts. So it was uh, it was stuff like that that made cots really interesting. And the only other thing they used to do, which was so unsafe, it was unbelievable, but it was so streetcar like that it was crazy. Is the crowd would literally line the walls all the way to the finish line. Oh yeah, it, yeah. You see pictures of that. I just. I, I just look as a media person like that and just uh just I shiver. Huh. No no one ever got hurt. I have no idea how that is the case, but literally there would be crowd lined along the walls all the way to the quarter mile. Yeah, that's I've seen pictures of that and I think I've I've seen the video of what you're talking about with that deal and for listeners to truly understand this 
like heads up cars are controlled chaos wild animals and the second on any surface you get out of the groove let alone go in the middle of the track you know that that car is going to do what it wants to do to be able to to cross over essentially twice not wad it up and be able to drive it down and win that's just that's bananas it was nuts it was crazy and what made that race so difficult was there was another rule that they imposed which i actually liked i wish they would do this in the in the no prep scene um is uh you could not if your front bumper crossed the starting line during a burnout you were eliminated you could not burn through the finish through the starting line so so whatever rubber you were leaving on was whatever rubber the track had on it at the time or whatever the guy in front of you happened to spin and blow the tires off and leave there there was no there was no burnouts through the starting line so you, the track really never got it really never got good until maybe towards the final, you know, during the first round, it was a toss up. Anybody could win because the track was in horrible shape because it was, they literally would, would wash it down, take all the glue off of it. And it was scraped to nothing. Like it was bare concrete. They wanted it to be so much like a street that that's what they made it like. And it was, uh, it was challenging. It was real challenging and it, it was a lot of fun. And, and I missed those COTS races and uh, um, the promoter, they called him Steve-O. He was a good guy and, and he did a, a whole lot for that whole deal. You know, he really promoted it well. And it was, uh, and, and, and our friend that passed away recently, Keith Sabo, um, he was, uh, he was, he was awesome at those races. You know, he won quite a few of them as well. And he was, anytime he pulled on the property, I'll be honest with you, you were scared to death because you knew he was going A to B. And he was going to be consistent, and he was going to be fast. So it was, uh, um, you know, th- that's what Lucas and I were discussing last night, talking about was just, you know, the good old days of doing that stuff. And, uh, you know, we've all kind of graduated into what we do today. Um, but, you know, those were memories that, that I'll never forget because we had so much fun doing that. Like, it was a one-day race off the trailer, no testing, no nothing, and you went at it. And it was, uh, it was fun. You just said something there that kind of sparked another line of question we can go into. And you talk about the good old days. And to Mm -hmm. me, I think part of that, and you know what we talked about earlier at the NHRA kind of, you know, pivoting on what it's all about. It comes back to those good old days and personalities. Because I just watched an old video Competition Plus posted about when John Force, you know, flipped out and dropped like 20 F-bombs arguing with NHRA officials, one of which was Linwood, by the way, which is pretty entertaining if anybody knows. <laughs> if any, I like Linwood. Linwood was great. If anybody knows who Linwood is, they'll get that, that, that reference. But, you know, I remember the church for us growing up outside of regular church was watching NHRA racing because we were, we were a John Force household. And we would watch just simply to see what he would say and what would happen. Like sometimes if he lost earlier on the broadcast, we'd turn it off. But just sure. back then, you know, like him, WJ and, you know, McCullough and just all those guys, they had personalities. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't as much like corporate handcuffing as there is now. Do you think that drag racing needs to bring more of that back? Oh, 100%. I think that's why Stevie Jackson is so popular. Stevie Jackson is kind of an old, is a new school rendition of that sort of thing because he's not afraid to say, uh, you know, 
that he, that he's going to gap somebody or this or that. He's not worried about the political correctness of it. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think most people are so worried about the political correctness that they almost come off being phonies or fake, you know, and, and it's and it, uh, and I think the drag racing needs to get back to it. I mean, if you really look at it, NASCAR went the same direction. And I look mean, at what back in the day, back in the day, there used to be a fist fight in the infield if you pissed the guy off, you know, now they're afraid to even say a word about it because they're going to get fined or this or that, you know. Unfortunately, that's just the direction that uh, that that most of those motorsports have taken. I think your backyard uh, dirt track racing is still true to its roots, where there's usually probably a fight or a squabble every night. But drag racing um, is a little different in that regards, and I think that you still get that though in in the uh, in the the type of racing we're involved in the 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 sportsman or 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 um, or, or heads up category of racing that we're involved in with the drag radio or the pro mod or this or that. Um, when you're racing the, the, the Donald's races or you're racing at, uh, um, you know, something that isn't necessarily a sanctioning body race, like, like, a, like one of Halsey's races or something like that, you still kind of get that flavor a little bit. Uh, but I do think it needs to come back a little more that, um, you know, it, it, uh, it builds, it builds a, a bit of, uh, I, well, I guess what the word I'm looking for, it, it, it makes it interesting when you have, when you know this guy on the starting line and this guy on the starting line, maybe aren't the best of friends who's going to win this race. You know, it kind of gives you a, uh, a cool sensation and, and, and Pat Musi and Tony Christian really characterized that in the nineties. I mean, that's what they did. Like they, you, you knew that, that Annette Summers, Pat Musi, Tony Christian, they were not the best of friends on the racetrack. And, uh, and, 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 and today they are, but back then they were very competitive with each other. And it was no doubt when you put a microphone in the front of one of them, one of them was going to say something about the other and, and vice versa. And it was going to create a heated match, but that created the drama that the crowd really could get into and they could, they could identify with and grasp and, and really get excited for that round of racing. Um, because they had a personal connection to people. And I think that sometimes with the way sports have gone, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, that personal connection is, is a little bit, um, a little bit less. So, so it's hard to identify with a guy there because you really don't have anything to identify with them about. And I think that's where, where we need to get back to. I agree with that a hundred percent. Oh, totally. I, I was watching some old NASCAR clips and, you know, I love dirt track racing. I've been to Eldora covered events you know, Tony Stewart owns that. So Tony Stewart, they had some actual like uh, some some footage of like the best of Tony Stewart kind of spouting off. My God, that man, some of the stuff he said was just phenomenal. He did not care. It was great. Oh, Tony Stewart's an awesome guy. My brother actually is, a, is pretty good friends with Tony Stewart. You know, my brother's been working in the NASCAR world for a long time and uh Tony is Tony. I mean, that's who he is. You know, he's, he's going to, he's going to be who he is and he's not going to, he's definitely not uh, a corporate guy. You know, he's a type of guy where he's going to, he's going to pretty much talk about, you know, whatever he can or do whatever he, whatever he wants to. And, and I like that. I respect that a lot, you know? So I think that's, uh, you know, drag racing needs to get back to that a little bit, you know, but I think we've, we've done good things with drag racing recently. Like all these, races like the race that we're hoping to go to here next week uh which is keith berry's race called Woostock, which is at uh, uh darlington south carolina as long as everything goes off as planned um 
I think it's going to be a huge event. And 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 Keith is a Keith has a a personality and a character as a promoter. And you know, along with the Carolina No Time Association, um, those guys have done a tremendous job. I think we're going to have a great race because. You know, they're one of the few people that are willing to do this during this time right now. A lot of events keep getting canceled and and, um, and things of that nature, but it, it seems like this one's going to get off without a hitch, and uh, I'm really excited to get to it, to be honest with you. You know, I, I wish I could go. You know, unfortunately, I'll be, you know, manning the uh, things behind the scenes, scenes with, a, with our broadcast on speed video, but one of the reasons why I wanted to go to that race is I've – I've never been able to go to like a big like grudge no time race where there's going to be a big component of that there. And that kind of ties into what you mentioned about, you know, racing off the trailer, high stakes. That's what the grudge world's all about. That's one of those you, you talk about a competitive world. There's a lot of money and a lot of peacocking, a lot of hardcore people that run in that deal. It's it's an interesting deal. I've been, you know, part of that grudge team for quite some time, and uh, um, it, it's it's very very much. <clears throat> there's a lot of egos going on there. There's a lot of money changing hands. There's a lot of everything going on, and uh, there's a lot of politicking. A lot of going in there and 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 negotiating a race that you think you can win, or you you know having an advantage. Uh, it's not always just heads up. Sometimes it's it's, you know, you, you give a guy the go, meaning the Christmas tree goes green. Both cars are still sitting there until one car who is given the go actually decides to leave. And then the other guy can chase, um, you know, so it's uh, or you give them car lengths or you give them, you know, certain things to try to even out a guy that, you know, is a little quicker than you. Uh, but you really don't know because you don't see any times. Um, but, you, you know, you, to try to even it out as best you can. And some of these races go off for, uh, you know, enough money that you could you could buy a new car for, to be quite honest with you. So it's uh, it's it's a trip. The whole the whole grudge scene is a whole nother world. And um, uh, the, the coolest race that I think I've ever been to. Um, no guts, no glory at Orlando's, uh, which is which happens during the same time as the PRI show. Uh, if you go to that race ever. It's an eye-opening experience. There, there will be five hundred to a thousand people in the starting line. Oh, it's you nuts. can't even you can't even see the cars. It's like the people open up, the car does a burnout through there, then it closes right back up behind them. And if you're on, if you're at the water box, you can't see the car on the starting line. There's that many people there, and it's it's unreal. It's 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 a it's a totally different style of event that you'd ever go to, uh, but it's pretty awesome. The I was very, very fortunate that I got to be at Ducks Race when J.R. Gray driving Jason X raced Chris Tootin driving Ghost for Mario Johnson. The like I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about the level of electricity and everything that went into that race. It, listeners, if you get a chance, go look up a video about that race because what they say online matches the hype. You know, that was a big high dollar race between two of the baddest small block nitrous cars ever. And it that was that was pretty wild. Were you, were you there for that one? I was there. I was I was there in the uh you know, I've known Chris Tootin for years. He's a great guy. Uh, and, and I was there, we were in the staging lanes getting ready to run a, a qualifying round. And, and that race was, uh, was pressed up into the lanes and, and, and I ran up and watched it as well. And, and it was, 
it was pretty incredible. A lot, a lot of money changed hands on that race. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't fictitious. I guess we'll say that because they were pitted next to one of our customers and when they won and they came back, I saw the wad of cash. I mean, it was no joke. So they, uh, there, there was definitely, uh, definitely some financial gains made on that one for sure. Oh, there was so much money flowing between those two camps. And I mean, I got to interview both of them after to talk about the race, did an article on it. And one of the best things that J.R. Gray said is, you know, it's not that we don't like each other, but we're competitors. And we, you know, we always want to one up those guys and race them. And I will give mad props to both of those dudes because, especially J.R. Gray, because he will throw down with anybody at any time. He's done it with the McCain brothers. That dude is a gangster when it comes to grudge racing. He is gnarly. Well, that's it's funny. There there are certain racers who are class racers, and there are certain racers who are just grudge racers. And he is just a grudge racer, and he will bet the farm on himself, and and he has a lot of confidence in himself. And uh, and and win, lose, or draw. He at the end of the day, he he the, he he is never ever not won or lost graciously. It's just that he's a good guy, and and he will flat race anybody for anything is what it boils down to. You know, the grudge scene has eventually, you know, everything runs its course a little bit. And, and I, again, I think it's kind of run its course a little more than, uh, than, than I wish it had because it's not get as popular because of the fact that I think some of the, the, some of the big power came in and, and ran a lot of people off. Unfortunately, um, it's not as strong of a scene as it used to be. Uh, which is a little disappointing because it was, it sure was a lot of fun to go to that stuff, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, I don't, it hasn't been, it hasn't been, you know, in, 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 in recent years, quite as strong as it was. I mean, when, you know, four or five years ago, it was, it was, there was so many grudge cars being built and so much grudge racing going on. And, and it was, uh, it was actually getting to the point where it was becoming more popular than class racing. And, uh, and then I think it start, It kind of took a little downward spiral recently. It hasn't been quite as popular. I've actually seen a lot of grudge racers start class racing because there wasn't really as much grudge racing to do any longer. The, the dude that owns, uh, what is it, Devil Horse, that, that car. Mm-hmm. I was talking with him at Tyler's race a couple years ago, and he told me— Xavier that, McBride. Yeah, Xavier told me that they went class racing— because it got to the point with grudge racing where people were so scared to run each other because of the amount of money that was like wrapped up into it. If you were if you were the big dog, it was hard to get races because like just it was like just this level of like it was like a nuclear arms race. And if you raced someone like that, I mean, it was devastating win or lose. Well, that's what that's what happened to it is uh, um you you would have a great car. You'd be a, a you know a, a real badass, and you'd show up at the racetrack, you know, thinking that you're got you got four races lined up, right? So you'd drive ten hours to a racetrack, and you got four races lined up, and 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 you know they're all locked in, but punk out money is only a, a you know let's say five hundred or a thousand on that race that you locked in, and you end up not running your car at all that night, and collecting you know, less money than it costs to get there because, because everybody kind of punked out on that race or whatever. And, and it was, uh, and that, that was really the problem. I think is that, that exactly what you said is you'd show up and nobody want to race you, you know? And, and it was, 
that's what the what spawned all the grudge shootouts and, and, and grudge shootouts are real popular for a while where everybody would put, you know, a uh, hundred or 500 or a thousand dollars in the pot and, 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 you know, winner take all type stuff. And that spawned all that sort of thing. And again, those gave a guy at least an opportunity to go out and race and, and, you know, the fastest car didn't always win and this and that, but um, even those aren't as popular as they were before. So it, uh, the grudge scene really needs a, a, a nice, uh, a nice boost again. It needs to get back in the swing of things. And uh, um, I think exactly what's, what, what Xavier said was true. You know, we race against him with, in, in limited drag radio with uh, Andy Manson, you know, um, both of those two cars are within the top three or four in the country in that particular class. Andy being our customer, Xavier, obviously, uh, you know, owning his car and uh, that, that devil horse car is fast and, and it was a fast grudge car and, and it, uh, um, yeah, but he's come over into class racing and he's done very well with it because, you know, it, it was definitely a well put together program. So, um, you know, but I kind of wish the grudge racing would take a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, a boost to get back to what it was. Cause it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was cool. I remember we drove, it was crazy. We drove Bodie. We took Bodie's car from a street outlaws race in Savannah, Georgia, uh, to where he was called out by Dolomite, which is, uh, uh, a car out of, out of Georgia as well. And, and we were, we were there in Savannah on the streets and we, uh, David Bird Jones was driving Bodie's car that night. So we took that car from that street outlaws race in Savannah. And then we had to be at the track at, uh, Macon, Georgia, um, and race the next day uh, against this Dolomite car. And it, it was a trip, man. It was, it was crazy. It was, that's, that the excitement level was huge. They literally opened up the racetrack just for this particular race between these two guys. And this wasn't a scheduled event. Uh, David Floyd, who's a great track, you know, owner and promoter opened the, opened the racetrack up. We showed up, we, we, we raced, we had a problem. Um, we, we tried like hell to fix the car. I actually, uh, uh, broke a lifter and, and tried like hell to fix the car and, and got it all back together. And, there's stipulations on a race where the race had to be off by X amount of time. We needed five minutes. We paid a thousand dollars for another five minutes. And it was just, it was crazy. Like that's back when, when grudge racing was, was a lot of fun. It was, it was, it was no joke. I mean, it was all about, it was all about winning and, and it was, uh, it was cool. You know, these days it's not quite like that anymore, but it, it was fun. Kind of going off of that, we're we're slowly winding the show down, and I wanted to ask you one more question to kind of you know, kind of put a little bow on it before we go to our little final segment. Out of you know, you you've been there, done that, been NHRA heads up racing, all kinds of stuff. What is your like biggest, most favorite, most fondest memory as a tuner? The one thing when that just is like the number one on your list out of all these experiences you've got to have. What's the one that you just, you really like hang your hat on as the best? Um, you know, I, I'm going to say that, uh, uh, there's a couple of them actually recent, just most recently, um, running with Kevin McCurdy and Tyler hard. We, uh, uh, we, 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 we went five fifty two at, at 260 or two fifty nine. Um, at the, at the final Northeast pro mod race last year, it was our final qu- quarter mile race. Cause Northeast pro mod was going to eighth mile the following season. 
And, and we put together a string of 550 runs that no one's duplicated ever. Um, you know, it went, a, it went a 555, a 552, a 556, and I think a 554. Um, and put together this string of 550 runs. That was pretty cool because that's something no one had ever done in the quarter mile. And, and we pretty well dominated that race when it came down to it. Uh, that, that's a great memory. And, and then the previous year when we won the championship in Northeast Pro Mod was a pretty neat memory as well because everything had to happen. Um, I needed a, you know, Tyler Hard, we were running his car. It was a Roots Miller car at the time, not a Pro Charger like they are now. Uh, but it, uh, we needed one particular car to lose, and we needed to march our way through and win this race to win the championship. And uh, everything just fell in place, and it was kind of a magical night when it all came down because that's exactly what we were able to do. We were able to go in and, and, and win the finals and win the championship. And I think for that whole team, that, that was a really, really cool uh, and unique win. And, and it, it was nice because it was, uh, it was kind of against the odds. You know, we weren't really supposed to. Coming into that, we weren't supposed to win that championship. And all the cards just kind of fell in the right direction. And, and next thing you know, you're holding a pair of aces and you're like, oh, this is great. So it, uh, those were some memorable things that we did with that particular team. But I, I think that as a, there's been so many over the years that it's, I'm sure there's many I forget. Uh, but those were two that stick out in my mind because uh, they were just unique and interesting and, and, and fun to set records in the quarter mile. And then, and then really fun to, uh, to go win a championship when you were kind of, when all the cards were stacked against you. Awesome. Well, I, I think that's going to put a nice little, uh, cap on the end of this and you know i like to give all my guests their opportunity to do their uh, best john force-esque impersonation where they go through and rattle off and talk about their sponsors and everything else you don't have to do, talk like john but you know <laughs> you know alexis did that and again i don't think anybody's ever going to beat her ability to impersonate john force but you know kind of tell the people where they can find you at what you got going on and you know all that fun stuff so i'll you know who you need to thank or whatever so i'll uh I'll just turn the floor over to you and let you uh, let you do your thing. Okay, sounds like a. Um, you know, Jason Lee, my cell phone, PTP Racing, part-time performance. Uh, you know, we can be reached uh, um, at one eight 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 five six six race was our 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 toll-free number. Um, my number, you can call me on my cell phone anytime is six one four five five four zero seven one three. We've got a. Uh, uh, you know, I work hand in hand with Haltech EFI systems. So if you're looking for a, a great EFI system, that's that's typically what I use. And 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 they've got a brand new product coming out here in uh, uh, literally would have been out by now, but the coronavirus has kind of slowed that a little bit. But it should be out within the, in the next month, uh, release to the public, and it's going to be like nothing else as far as the speed of it, the ability that this particular R5 Nexus ECU has is. Is very impressive. Um, Haltech's really done their their uh, their their job making a, a, a better mousetrap than what we currently have right now, and it's uh, it's pretty awesome. But you know, as far as Precision Turbo, working Precision Turbo, um, Pro Charger, of course, uh, uh, we you know, just work with a whole host of companies. Pretty much, our company is anything you need. You just give us a shout. We're kind of a one-stop shop. You can uh, you can get any parts you want from us. Uh, if if you're if you so desire it, chances are we're a dealer of it because we've been a dealer um, for for probably I don't know the hundred of the best companies in the world for for the last fifteen years. So uh, if you need anything, just give us a call. 
Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks for Patrick stopping by, and we'll see you at the racetrack soon. Sounds great. Appreciate it very much. Well, that wraps up the show for this week. Thanks for Patrick for stopping by, and as always, may your action times be crisp and your wind lights bright. Until next week, folks.